Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, this is All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today we have got the wonderful ladies from Tudor Times, Deborah Royal and Melita Thomas. How are you two doing today? Good, thank you. Excellent, thanks, yes. (laughs) Well, it's so great to have you here. In case no one has ever heard of Tudor Times or the two of you, how would you introduce yourself if they met you at a cocktail party? Uh, well, that's that's a tricky one, trying to get it into the elevator pitch. But Tudor Times was set up in 2014 to be a repository of information about everything related to the Tudors and Stuarts in the periods 1485 to 1625. I'm the editor alongside Deborah. And the rest of the time, I'm a writer. I've written two books, one on Mary I, The King's Pearl, one on the Grey family, The House of Grey. And I'm currently studying for my doctorate at UCL, looking at Mary I's political and social networks. Yes, and Deborah Royal. So with Melita, set up Tudor Times, the website. And we're just saying we're coming up to our eighth birthday, actually. So that's in December. When I'm not doing that, I also have recently set up and I'm the editor for Tudor Places magazine. So that's a magazine that's print and digital, all about everything to do with places in the Tudor world, whether it's castles through to cathedrals, abbeys, shops, anything to do with that. So we have expert contributors and that comes out every two months. And I know, Deb, that your uh, Facebook group, so All Things Tudor, we've got a special discount code on Tudor Places magazine, which people can use to try the magazine. And then I'm also finishing a master's in English building history. And my dissertation is about Catherine Parr's privy apartments at Hampton Court Palace, because I'm lucky enough to live close to Hampton Court Palace. And it's just such a wonderful place to visit. I do it as often as I can. Well, thank you. It's so delightful to have you both here. And every time I talk to you, I learn something new about you and about the topic, of course. So today, do you want to talk about Margaret Douglas? Yes, please. She's a wonderfully (laughs) interesting woman. (laughs) Isn't she fascinating? One of the great things about Margaret Douglas is that she actually led to the founding of Tudor Times. (laughs) Because, well, many years ago, as I say, 2014, I was looking at researching a book to write about Margaret Douglas. And Deb and I went on a road trip to Scotland and we looked at some of the places where she lived, at Town Tallinn and obviously the royal palaces. And we thought to ourselves, if only there were a website with all sorts of useful and interesting information about the Tudors and the Stuarts, you know, wouldn't that be fantastic? And so we thought, well, there isn't one. So let's build one. And that was the genesis of Tudor Times. And yeah, we'll be eight in, in December, as Deb says. 
So we'll always owe a debt of gratitude to Margaret Douglas. And I hope she's looking down or up from wherever she is and saying, yep, that's my longest lasting creation. <laughs> well, happy birthday to you. And it couldn't be on a more intriguing person. Where can we start with her life? Of course, we'll start with her birth, but she was remarkable in so many ways and intriguing. And who wants to go first? I expect most of you have heard of Margaret Douglas, but just in case you haven't, she was the daughter of Margaret Tudor. So the granddaughter of Henry VII. Now, Margaret Tudor in the early 16th century married James IV of Scotland and by him, she had a son, James V, but James IV died at the Battle of Flodden and Margaret remarried to a chap called Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus. And this created a bit of a stir in Scotland at the time because Margaret was only retained as regent of Scotland as long as she remained unmarried. So once she married the Earl of Angus, there was a great deal of discussion and infighting about who should become the regent or the governor, as they called it. So Margaret and Angus had a daughter, but owing to all these arguments about who was going to be the regent of Scotland, Margaret and Angus had slipped across the border into England, into the territory of Margaret's brother, Henry VIII of England. And Margaret was actually born in England in Harbottle Castle. So it's very confusing with the Margarets, isn't it? We should probably say, so Margaret Douglas, daughter of Margaret Tudor, was born at Harbottle Castle, which, as Melita said, was just over the border between Scotland and England at that time. So it's sort of the border country, the border moved a bit, but it was very remote. And I thought quite a lot about Margaret Tudor when I was up there because she was very heavily pregnant when she did this sort of dash across the border, literally. She rode, I think, from, if not from Edinburgh, close to Edinburgh, wasn't it? Was it Stirling or Edinburgh? So she rode across the border heavily pregnant and got to Harbottle Castle, now in Northumberland, and gave birth to Margaret Douglas. And I think it was a difficult birth because she actually stayed there. She was quite unwell afterwards. And so they stayed there for quite a few months before they then carried on down further into England and down to the English court. And you can go to Harbottle today. Melita and I did as part of the road trip she mentioned. It's very much a ruin. There's not much left. It's not a substantial ruin. It's The, the ruins remain would be the best way to describe it. But you can get up and walk in sort of quite a remote area still. There's sheep grazing there. and But you can get up and walk around and it really gives you a sense of how remote it was actually then and even now really and as I say they were there for quite a few months before going further south down to the English court. Yes so Margaret came to the English court in the hopes that Henry VIII would make sure she was reinstated as governor of Scotland. Angus had actually gone back to Scotland to make his peace with the new governor a chap called the Duke of Albany but Margaret hoped that she would be reinstated. However, Henry VIII was less interested in what his sister wanted than in what he thought was the right thing for his own policies. So eventually, Margaret Tudor, together with the baby Margaret, was sent back to Scotland where she was forced into a a sort of an accommodation with the Duke of Albany. But she discovered when she got there that her husband had been living with his mistress. So the marriage of Margaret Douglas's parents hit the rocks really at that point and it never really recovered. 
So there's not an awful lot known about Margaret Douglas's childhood. Was she with her mother? Was she with her father, the Earl of Angus? It's possible but unlikely that she spent a little bit of time in France in her early childhood because Angus had to go there. He was he was banished. But that seems unlikely. So we don't really know how much time she spent at the Scottish court or whether she stayed in her father's castle. If she did, she would probably have lived at Tantallon, which is another of the great, really wonderful locations that Deb and I visited and is still there. <laughs> Yeah, and you gosh, it is wonderful, isn't it? So for people trying to imagine it, so it's in Tantallon Castle is in North Berwick, so it's over the Scottish border. It's right on the coast. In fact, actually on the edge of cliffs. It's, a, it's sort of a mighty medieval fortress made out of red I remember it as being very red, red sandstone, red and when you stand there today, it's another very isolated it's it's on the cliff tops looking out onto the Firth of Forth, so looking out to sea. And you can see the Bass Rock, a sort of tiny rock there. Now, this is a very substantial ruin, so it's a fabulous place to go and visit. There's lots to see. You can still see a lot of, you can sort of clamber around and up the different levels of this mighty castle. And it's run by Historic Scotland, so it is a fabulous place to visit, but still reasonably isolated, isn't it? Very wild. And don't forget your thermals. Even if you go in July, do not forget your thermals. It is as cold as charity. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> very, yeah, very cold. And we visited it in summer. And as you said, and I do remember it as being very cold, very windy, being sort of right on the coast. They do wonderful things with sort of reenactments and they have classes for kids, you know, sword fighting. And it's a really a great place to visit. Once again, I think thinking about Margaret Douglas and where her later life ends up, because she ends up down in England and spends a lot of time at the English court. I mean, this is a very remote, isolated spot again. Oh, and there is one thing about it just to mention, which sort of gives a bit of an idea of family relations, I think, is that when her father was there in 1528, uh, we don't know whether Margaret Douglas was there or not. She probably wasn't. But when he was there, Margaret's half-brother, James V, besieged her father in the castle trying to capture him. I don't think he did actually capture him in the end, did he, Melita? But he did lay siege to the castle to try and get him. Yes, and that was the point at which Angus and Margaret actually went over the border again into England. And this time it was to Norham Castle, I think, which was held by a chap called Thomas Strangeways, or Strangwish, it's sometimes pronounced, but Strangeways. And basically Angus dumped his daughter on Strangeways with her, her governess, who was her, her aunt, Isabel Hopper, and a few waiting maids and so forth. And he said to Strangeways, you know, can you look after my daughter? And Strangeways thinking, ah, well, you know, Henry VIII is going to be very pleased with this one, said, yeah, absolutely, I'll hang on to her. Sent a letter to Cardinal Wolsey, who was actually Margaret Douglas's godfather, and said, you know, I'm going to keep the Lady Margaret here. What would you like me to do? And by the way, you know, can you send me some money? Because although Angus promised that he would send some money, funnily enough, I haven't seen a penny. So Margaret stayed at Norham for a while. It's not, again, entirely clear when she left or exactly where she went to. But that one theory is that she was brought south and placed in the care of her aunt, Mary the French Queen. But I think the much more likely scenario is that she was brought south and went immediately to her cousin, the other Mary, the other Princess Mary, Henry VIII's daughter. She was certainly there in 1530. 
And for the next ooh, three years, because Mary at this stage was still legitimate, even though Henry was, was trying to cast off Catherine of Aragon, Mary and Margaret lived together under the care of Mary's governess, Margaret, Countess of Salisbury. And Margaret seems to have actually struck up a very warm relationship with her uncle, Henry VIII. He sent her a fabulous gift of clothes when she was about 16, velvet dresses, French hoods, shoes, pins, clothes for her servants, and a, a standard, you know, one of those little pennants with a, with a coat of arms that would have been carried in front of her. You know, she was, she was a great deal more comfortable probably at the English court than she had been slipping backwards and forwards over the border in her childhood. She and Mary became very close friends, but in 1533, with the birth of Elizabeth, Margaret was set on a new path when Mary's household was disbanded, in which Margaret had actually earned a, a princely sum of £10 a year, and Margaret became one of the entourage of the new Queen, Anne Boleyn. And her official role was as Chief Lady of the Bedchamber to the young Princess of Elizabeth, but it doesn't seen that she lived at Hatfield with Elizabeth. In fact, she stayed with Anne and became one of that rather fun group of people who surrounded Anne with Thomas Wyatt and George Boleyn and Henry Howard and Mary Shelton. They were all young and fun together and Margaret seems to have been really joined in court life. One of the interesting things from this period is a, is a document called the Devonshire Manuscript. And in this, Mary Shelton and Margaret in particular, and Mary, the Duchess of Richmond, Henry's daughter-in-law, they wrote poems, uh, or they copied out poems from Wyatt in particular, but also Henry Howard. And they commented on whether they thought the poems were good enough to go into the collection or whether they ought not to go into the collection and, you know, which ones they liked and which ones they didn't. And it's one of those things that they just circulated amongst themselves. And it's, the Devonshire manuscript it can still be seen, I think, at the British Library. And I think there's been some recent research into it, which is really very interesting. But whilst Sir Mary was there in this atmosphere of you know, courtly love and romance, she began relationship with Lord Thomas Howard. Now, Lord Thomas Howard, he was Anne Boleyn's uncle, but he was not dissimilar in age from her because his father had had uh, more than 20 children. The oldest was Thomas, Duke of Norfolk, and obviously he'd run out of inspiration for names because the youngest was also Thomas, which is a bit confusing. But anyway, Margaret started a relationship with a young Thomas, and there was talk of marriage. They promised themselves to each other. They both swore they never consummated it. I mean, who knows? There they were, young and at court, but apparently they didn't. Anne, it seems, encouraged the match because obviously a match between her family and the king's family would be a good thing for her. It would raise her profile and her prestige. And similarly for Margaret, a marriage to the king's uncle was a good idea. And it seems that Henry, well, it's not clear whether Henry knew and just didn't really think about it, or whether he knew and thought it was a good idea. But then suddenly it wasn't a good idea because Anne Boleyn was, within the space of a few weeks, as, as we know, fell from being queen to being a, an executed ex-queen. And suddenly Henry became aware that his niece had possibly married without his consent. And guess what? He went completely bananas. And both of them were sent straight off to the tower, which obviously 
we all know about the tower, but I don't know, Deb, if you want to just think about where Margaret might have been kept in the tower and her the circumstances she lived in. Yes, I'm not so sure about her first visit because this is the really visit I should <laughs> stay imprisonment. <laughs> um, this is a really fascinating thing about Margaret Douglas. Is she actually had three separate stays in the tower for displeasing the monarch. You know, the first one with Henry, you think that that would be scary enough. I mean, I, especially when he had just executed his queen. Remember that had never happened before. All of Europe was aghast by it. And a few months after that, Margaret goes into the tower. I'm not sure where she was for that first visit. I do know with subsequent visits. I don't know. Do you know Melita for the first visit? No, I don't. I'm guessing it was either the Bell Tower or the Lord Lieutenant's house. Yeah, I would have thought so. So I guess that's just the point to make, isn't it? Although, on the one hand, it would have been extremely worrying and terrifying, really, especially seeing what the king could do if he wasn't happy with you. But on the other hand, people shouldn't think that the Tower of London, particularly for high-status people, was a dungeon. So obviously Anne Boleyn actually stayed in her own Queen's apartments when she was imprisoned there. And Margaret would have been in reasonable apartments, one assumes, with some attendants. But nevertheless, she was in the Tower of London and she stayed there for quite a while, didn't she? Well, there's a lot of debate about this. Now, some biographers have her in the Tower until the end of 1537. But again, looking at the evidence again this morning before before talking, I think it was only till only a few months until the end of 1536. Queen Margaret wrote, begging her brother to release, release her daughter, said, send her home to me in Scotland. You never need to be troubled with her again, just sort of pleading with him. Thomas Howard was attainted of treason and was sentenced to death. He did actually die before he was executed. Then Margaret was sent to Sion Abbey. And again, it was possibly, in, I think probably in October of 1536, but possibly the following year. Because the next thing we hear is that Henry's sent her a beautiful red velvet chair and he writes back to Queen Margaret that as long as she behaves herself, you know, that's all right. <laughs> she would be forgiven if she comported herself properly in future. And I find it difficult to believe he'd be sending her red velvet chairs and forgiving her and leaving her in the tower. So I think it's more likely that she went to Sion at that point. But we know she was in Sion because she's next heard of writing to Cromwell in a very jaunty style, because Cromwell has written to her complaining that she's eating too much or her servants are eating too much and drinking too much and entertaining too many guests and costing the house, as he calls it, a lot of money. And Margaret writes back saying, well, she hasn't got any more servants than she had before when she was at the court. And that although she had taken in a couple of Lord Thomas's servants, they were destitute, so she had no choice really. And that so far as she knew, it wasn't going to cost the house, so presumably Sion, anything as all her servants got was the food that she herself hadn't eaten. And she promised to be a good girl and could Cromwell make sure she was back at court soon. Very little sign of grief or unhappiness, although she did say, she did reassure him that actually she was um, completely over Lord Thomas and, you know, the king didn't need to worry about it. And I think that's true from a political point of view. She clearly wasn't going to protest that their marriage had been valid in any way. But some of the verses in the Devonshire manuscript after Lord Thomas died suggest that she was, in fact, very, very upset by the whole thing. But, you know, she obviously knew, you know, that she had no choice but to conform to Henry's wishes. And Sion Abbey, Deb, can you tell us more about Sion? 
So Cyanab is now in sort of what we call Greater London, sort of not that far from Kew, close to the river, and close to Hampton Court. The reason why I'm pausing is I believe that it was one of the buildings that you could see from Hampton Court. So Sion Abbey was a very prestigious abbey, which unusually had men and women, with a woman abbess in charge of both houses. Sadly, it's no longer there. It was demolished after the dissolution of the monasteries. Parts of the one of the buildings, I believe, have been incorporated into what's now Sion House. So if you go to visit it today, you can visit Sion House and it's still got some of the footprint. So there is talk of the, the, so the long gallery, for example, although it looks very Georgian and more recent design, is actually the space that is said to be where Lady Jane Grey was when she found out that she was queen. It's also the place where Catherine Howard was taken when she was first removed from Hampton Court Palace. And I've yet to see, but I really want to see, because I understand that in the basement there are still some of the original brick remains of Sion Abbey. They do a lot of, I think Time Team might have done some, there's been a huge amount of archaeological work done to sort of map out where the abbey was, but sadly you can't see any of it today. One of the other actually interesting things about Sion is one of the, it was refounded under Mary I, one of the few houses it was refounded, and the community of nuns who had gone abroad came back to Sion, and they were one of the few English religious orders that maintained their longevity, so to speak, that they weren't a new order, they were a, re, a refounding of the old order. And in fact, rather sadly, I think, the last nun of Sion died in 2011. Was it down in the West Country? Did they set up? After Mary's death, they went abroad again to Leuven, I think. And then they came back in the 1840s after emancipation of Catholics, set up somewhere down in the West. And yes, last nun of Sion died in 2011, which is kind of sad, but romantic, I guess. (laughs) That really ties it into our modern era. And that's something we don't always think about. Yes, the long, the chain of command from abbess to abbess to abbess over the centuries is is fascinating yeah i was going to say speaking of sort of sad and romantic despite all of this margaret douglas then became friendly with another howard didn't she Yes. After being released from Sion, she probably went back to the household of Mary because she had actually attended Jane Seymour's wedding because this was before Henry knew about her secret liaison. Then when Anne of Cleves came to England, Margaret was chief lady of the bedchamber to Anne of Cleves. It was more ceremonial. She didn't sort of do the hands on, I don't think. And of course, she became you know, there was Catherine Howard also in the court, although far below Margaret in rank. So it must have been a bit of a shock when everybody suddenly discovered that Catherine was going to be queen. Catherine had a younger brother, Charles. And yes, Margaret started up another flirtation. Now, in some ways, Henry was derelict in his duty not to arrange marriages for his niece, a marriage. And there were various negotiations with foreign ambassadors. There was talk of her being married to an Italian prince or count to be chosen by the Emperor Charles. Henry's plan was that his daughter Mary would marry the Louis of Portugal, as Charles wanted, and then Charles could pick three husbands that he liked for Margaret, Mary, Duchess of Richmond, and Elizabeth. So, you know, there was sort of buy one, get three free arrangement that Henry was thinking about. And Margaret was sometimes called the Princess of Scotland, although 
she wasn't, in fact, but she was treated as as a princess and as Henry's, um, as well as his daughters. So there's Catherine Howard, and they're all dancing and laughing and playing the lute and all the rest of it together. And then poor Catherine, well, we know, know what happened to poor Catherine. And Margaret, she wasn't questioned about any of Catherine's antics. I don't think they were particularly close. It was quite a big age gap. But she did get a severe telling off about her liaison with Charles Howard. Uh, Archbishop was was sent to her to tell her that the king had forgiven her twice, but she was to beware a third time. And she was sent off to the country with Mary of Richmond to live at Kenninghall in Norfolk and learn better manners. So so she spent probably six months to a year at Kenninghall, probably, maybe a bit more. I mean, Kenning Hall is a, one of those many vanished Tudor places I would love to see. <laughs> so Kenning Hall, there was a, a very new, large building put there, built sort of at the turn of the 16th century. So the Dukes of Norfolk owned it and they built this sort of large, impressive, I think it was out of red brick, you know, the latest fashion. Kenning Hall was really impressive and all that remains today, so it was around a courtyard, so uh, four ranges, and as I say, very. And we know a bit about it because of some of the inventories that that we have about it. But sadly, all that remains today is part of one range, which I think has been put into a farmhouse. But once again, as you say, she was sort of sent away. That was that's quite a long way out in the country. I have a question. We know that Henry left Margaret, his sister Margaret's family out of the line of secession. He did seem somehow to have a soft spot for her daughter, though, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. I mean, thinking about that, the if you look at what succession thing is, is quite complicated. So the act of succession gave the crown after Henry to Edward and his children. And then if he had none, Mary and her children, and then Elizabeth and her children. But the act said that Henry could name whoever was to come after Elizabeth at his discretion. And this is where Henry mentioned the descendants of his sister Mary, not his older sister Margaret. But he didn't actually name Mary's daughters. He named the next generation. And the same, he didn't name Margaret. And he, he cut out the Queen of Scots descendants altogether. And there's been discussion, was this because he and Margaret fell out? But there's no real evidence of that. I think it's probably for the same reason that he didn't mention Francis Brandon or Eleanor Brandon, is the husbands. I mean, Margaret was married to the Earl of Lennox, who fundamentally, although he was on Henry's payroll, he and she married him in 1544, he was on Henry's payroll, but he was still Scottish. And the very idea that Henry might have had of a, a Scottish nobleman becoming King of England would make what Harry had stand on end. So there was no possibility that he was going to going to name her while she had a, a, a Scottish husband. And I think that's probably the, the main reason behind it. And he, he didn't much like his sister Margaret and he hated his nephew James V. So we don't know, but that would be a, a reasonable idea because he certainly didn't name Francis Brandon either because he thought her husband Henry Gray was an idiot. Um, <laughs> Just, he never gave he never gave many positions of power. Nothing. Never never gave him a job. Wouldn't it, on one his, occasion. His suggests he might have been right. <laughs> Henry was a very good very good judge of character. I'm Paul Henry Gray. He was nominated for the Garter repeatedly. All of the everybody else, all the other knights nominated in one year, and Henry still said no. So. 
So I think it was it could well have been Margaret's husband, even though Lennox, you know, was on his payroll. Possibly he had realised that Lennox was not terribly trustworthy. He changed coats a number of times. Well, like you say, that that Scottish thing was kind of a thorn in Henry's side. So that's very understandable. Thanks for answering my question. Now, back to Margaret. So, well, we have got to the point where, so Henry marries Catherine Parr and Margaret zooms back to court and she's one of the Queen's ladies and she meets the Spanish ambassador and again, it's all singing and dancing. But Henry now has a husband for her, the aforementioned Earl of Lennox, who, having been brought up at the court of France, went to Scotland to support the French activities in Scotland under Marie of Guise, but fell out with the governor. It had all changed in Scotland by now, and Mary, the little Mary Queen of Scots was queen. And Lennox and the governor, Aaron, were at such daggers drawn that Lennox switched to the English side when Aaron switched to the French side. So Lennox got in touch with Margaret's father, the Earl of Angus, said he would sell out to the English if he could marry Margaret. And Henry went for this, and he gave them a big settlement, huge amounts of land and property, and I'm sure Deb will tell you more about those in a minute. And the couple were married in 1544. They were very happily married. They really became very, very fond of each other. They had eight children, of whom only two survived, the second son, Henry, Lord Darnley, and the youngest, Charles, Lord Charles Stuart, who we'll come on to. But Margaret now has a vast swathe of lands in the north of England. Hmm. Just the other thing I think is interesting about that, Melita, is just reminding people or pointing out that she was quite old when she got married. She was in her late 20s, wasn't she? Nearly 30, in fact, because she had been born in 1515. And so we're now sort of talking, was it 1544? Yeah, she was 29, yeah. Mm. Yeah, which was unusual. And so then to actually have a very happy marriage, which obviously wouldn't have been a guaranteed thing when it was sort of arranged in those circumstances. As you mentioned, as part of her sort of when they got married, Henry sort of is granted to her as part of uh, the, the wedding, sort of as a wedding gift, huge lands up in Yorkshire, so sort of in the middle of England, middle to north of England, which included a number of quite substantial properties, some of which had been confiscated from people that did the wrong thing during the Pilgrimage of Grace. So the main ones in particular is a place called Temple Newson. So for people that know, that's now on the outskirts of Leeds, so very close to Leeds, and in fact Leeds City Council still own and manage it. It obviously would have been further in the country back in the 16th century, and they developed that into a fantastic sort of modern, up-to-date Tudor mansion that was became known as the Hampton Court of the North. So, And I sort of take from that, Melissa, I don't know if you do as well, I sort of take that meaning the way it looked, Mm. but potentially also the fact that it it attracted a number of people as well, uh, the way a court does. So they had this marvellous place that had been confiscated, well, it had been confiscated from Thomas Lord Darcy um, because of his involvement in the Pilgrimage of Grace. They did quite a bit of building works, I understand, and as I say, built this fabulous Tudor mansion. Now, today, you can still go and visit Temple Newsome. As I said, it's slightly confusing in that it's mostly a Jacobean mansion. There is part of, so it's a three-sided, it around a courtyard and looks very like what you imagine that the Tudor mansion would have been, but it's not. It's Jacobean. There's a bit of a Tudor range still 
there which you can visit and they've actually decorated some of the rooms that would have been sort of like the privy apartments with Tudor wood panelling. So there's a 16th century wooden panelling, 16th century furniture in the rooms that they believe were used by Margaret and possibly where Darnley was born, because he was born at Temple Newsom. But they've actually been bought from another place. They've been bought from Broughton Castle. It's great to go and visit it. The footprint is what was there during Margaret's time, but it's not sort of original to what she would have seen when she was there. It's a lovely place to visit. And, you know, you sort of have the countryside around it still, although you are very close to Leeds. That was one of them. Later on, there were two sort of other key places there too. One is Juvo Abbey. So Juvo Abbey, also in Yorkshire, was granted to the Lennoxes and they built another large modern Tudor mansion there as well. That's in ruins. You can still go and visit the ruins. It's privately owned, but you can still go to Juvo Abbey. And there are still parts of the Lennox's 16th century mansion there. I've not visited recently. Melissa, I know you have in terms of what you can see at Juvo. And I've never been there. Well, no, I've been to the Abbey ruins many years ago, but I didn't know at that time that there was any of Margaret's mansion. So. Yeah, so that's one of the one of the tricks. Okay, so um, <laughs> <laughs> if you could hear us saying that. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. And as a listener to this message, you are already aware of the All Things Tudor podcast. There is also an All Things Tudor book club and a periodic live audio chat, often featuring special guests. Members of the All Things Tudor Facebook group can look forward to some upcoming surprises. So you're invited to become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and answer the simple membership questions. We look forward to having you join us at All Things Tudor. One of the things you can tell I understand looking at the photos and remembering back is that there's still some remainders of, sort of a typical Tudor-shaped, some of the windows and the arches there. So, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing when you look at a number of these abbeys. They were often... After the dissolution, the lands were granted to wealthy nobles and some gentry, and they often built within the abbey themselves, and it's quite difficult to see always where the abbey finishes or the abbey buildings finish and the new mansions begin. But they built this fabulous one, and sadly there's very little trace of it left now at Gervaux. And then later on, I guess the other one that's worth mentioning is Settrington Manor House, which you can't see anymore. That's in North Yorkshire, and it was also confiscated again. It was from Sir Francis Bigod, who was the, one of the leading rebels from the Pilgrimage of Grace. And Margaret Douglas, lived, or the Countess of Lennox, lived in that quite a lot during Elizabeth's reign when she wasn't really at court very much. And that and Wrestle Castle. So there were these properties on their extensive land holdings up in the in, in Yorkshire, North Yorkshire. These last two I'd mentioned, Settrington Manor and Wrestle Castle, were quite close to the coast, which could have been helpful for sort of keeping a low profile and keeping in touch with through 
messages and letters with people on the continent. So, you know, France, Spain and around there. And I guess I've jumped ahead about Havenheimer later mm-hmm. about why it's important. So we should maybe backtrack a bit. But I think the big thing for people to really take out of it is that is that the Lennox has had these extensive land holdings in Yorkshire. You can still visit Temple Newsom today and Jervo Abbey, but there's very little that remains of what they had. So there's Margaret. She, when Lennox is away, she's often at the court. But then Henry VIII dies in 1547. And obviously, she isn't anywhere in the succession plan. And the regime of Edward VI rapidly shows itself as heading for Protestantism. Now, Margaret remained a Catholic to her dying day. She was a very traditional Catholic. She liked her relics. She liked her images. She was, she was very traditional, much more traditional than her cousin Mary. And Lennox, insofar as Lennox had any religion at all, he was perfectly willing to to change it, to adapt to the times, shall we say. But Margaret remained faithful and brought her sons up, again, not in the Catholic faith, although they don't seem to have been that bothered either. So she kept a low profile in Edward's reign. There's no references to her other than a request to visit Scotland in 1552, which it seems was permitted because she had had a massive falling out with her father, who, having married again after having married for a third time, had sons who would have inherited his earldom. But then when they died, instead of Margaret being his heir, as she should have been because the the earldom was inheritable by women, he changed the rules so that it went to his brother's family and Margaret was deeply unhappy about this. Anyway, she was allowed to go to Scotland, but she did come back. But all changed in 1553 when her cousin and old friend Mary became queen and Margaret, she couldn't get to London fast enough. She was there in time for the coronation. She, you know, (laughs) but to be fair, they had been friends for a long time and Margaret became Mary's chief lady and she was sometimes put in order of precedence above Elizabeth, which did not endear her to her, her other cousin, Elizabeth, and the two clearly never really got on terribly well. And there was talk that Margaret being a good Catholic, Mary would look at willing the throne to her or changing the order of succession. I mean, Mary was obviously more interested in having her own child, but when it became apparent that she wasn't going to, there was more talk of this. And the young Darnley was brought to the court. He was only, he was, oh, what, 10, 12. He was given some of King Edward's old clothes and his old lutes. And when I said these old clothes, I mean, these were clothes sort of king, so they, they were all I'm sure rather splendid. And Mary made made much of Lennox and Darnley. So what Margaret thought would happen, we don't know. But in the event, Mary accepted that Elizabeth was her heir. And when she died, Elizabeth inherited and Margaret made no objections or complaints or, or did anything other than swear her loyalty very, very quickly, which Elizabeth accepted. But she made very clear that Margaret wasn't welcome at court. So Margaret retires back up to the north. And in this time, there's a whole load of Lennox going backwards and forwards to Scotland to try to, well, he wants to get his estates back that have been confiscated. And Elizabeth does give him a certain amount of help on this. But then Margaret's thinking, well, we're not going to get very far at the English court, but perhaps we can do better at the Scottish court. So she's she's allowed to send Darnley to France to pay his respects to Mary, Queen of Scots on her marriage that he was only a child or a young a teenager. But then in 
60 when was it 1560 Francis died or 61 anyway Mary Queen of Scots her husband died young and Darnley was allowed by Elizabeth to go with the English ambassador to the court of France to pay condolences from the Lennoxes because Mary Queen of Scots was of course Margaret's half-niece James V's daughter and immediately rumours sprang up that the Lennoxes were going to plan a marriage between Darnley and the Queen of Scots. And I mean, this was a busy time and Margaret certainly had, had ideas of this sort. And Mary Queen of Scots herself had no interest at this stage. She was far more interested in trying to arrange a marriage with Don Carlos. But rumours persisted and Margaret found herself back in the tower. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So in 1562, she's back in the town. Now, I do know for this one, I'm pretty sure she was in the Lord Lieutenant's lodging. So that was next to the bell tower. But yeah, no, she was back in the tower. Uh, who knows what she thought being back there for a second time. Mm-hmm. And she certainly wasn't as on good terms with Elizabeth as she'd been with Henry. So... <laughs> Then Elizabeth fell ill with smallpox in 1562, and of course there was a big hoo-ha about who her successor was going to be. Interestingly, Leicester, well he wasn't Lord Leicester then, he was still only Lord Robert Dudley, although he was uh, definitely of of the Puritan end of the spectrum, he didn't really support the Protestant claimant Catherine Grey. He seemed to favour Margaret and Darnley. Stranger, while Cecil, possibly to annoy Cecil, but who preferred Catherine Grey, that could have had something to do with it. Anyway, Elizabeth relented and Margaret was allowed to leave the tower on the proviso that Darnley would not marry without Elizabeth's consent. So another couple of years go past and Darnley is now a young man of 18 or 19 and the Queen of Scots is really looking for a husband now. So feelers are put out and at this point Elizabeth seems to think this might be a possibility. She doesn't sort of veto it entirely. Then she suggests that Mary Queen of Scots ought to marry Dudley. Now whether she ever thought that Mary would marry Dudley I don't know but Mary wasn't terribly interested in Elizabeth's old cast-offs and Elizabeth clearly knew that that Margaret was contriving to have Darnley marry marry the Queen of Scots because she said to Melville, uh, Mary's ambassador, well, you know, you've come to talk about Dudley, but you actually refer yonder long lad, as she called him, because um, Darnley was exceptionally tall. And, you know, the uh, Scots ambassador said, no, 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 not at all, not at all. But they were intriguing for the marriage to take place. Lennox went back to Scotland and he sent a message to Elizabeth saying he needed his son there to transact some land business because his estates had been restored. And Elizabeth said yes, which is very surprising, but perhaps not so surprising at all. Elizabeth had seen enough of Darnley to know that he would be a completely useless husband for Mary. So I have to say, I I belong to the school that thinks Elizabeth had this as a possibility all along and that the more she discouraged Mary from marrying Darnley, the more likely she was to do it. So anyway, permission was granted for Darnley to go north. Uh, Elizabeth changed her mind at the last minute, but the messenger didn't catch up with him in time. And there he was over the border in Scotland. And the next thing that Elizabeth hears is that Mary has created a Merle of Ross and Elizabeth then throws one of her famous tantrums, calls Lennox and Darnley back. They ignore him and the bands are called and Darnley is now Henry, King of Scots. 
and Margaret is back in her old home of the Tower of London. <laughs> she was quite at home there, wasn't she? <laughs> she was, yeah. You wonder if she if she took her own furnishings and said, "Oh, you know, I'll have I'll have this room rather than that room." Exactly. Yeah, so there she is, kicking her heels in the tower again. Now, it's to byword what a disaster the marriage of Mary and Darnley was. I mean, to be fair, it was on paper, it was a good match. Darnley did have a claim to the throne of England. He had a claim to the throne of Scotland. He was young. He was well-educated. He was Catholic, but not so Catholic as to be desperately offensive to Mary's nobles, although they hated him. But as an individual, he was hopeless as a husband. I think there doesn't seem to be much doubt that Margaret and Lennox had had thoroughly spoiled him, which you can perhaps understand having lost so many children. He had, you know, absolutely no self-control. He was only young. He was a drunk. He was flagrantly unpleasant and abusive towards his wife. You know, all of those unpleasant things happened that resulted in the, in Darnley's assassination in 1567. And Margaret was absolutely devastated. I mean, she was just distraught because she thought as well that Lennox had also been killed. So she thought she'd lost husband and child. Even Elizabeth, who was somewhat flinty towards her cousin, you know, felt sorry for her. And she was released from the tower and the news was broken to her as gently as possible. But poor Margaret, she had lost her son and she was convinced that Mary, Queen of Scots, was behind the death. And she begged Elizabeth to take some action, to lead an army, to, you know, do anything she could to have Mary brought to book the murder of Darnley. Now, there was no chance of any of this happening whilst Mary was still Queen of Scotland. But when she was deposed in 1568 and came to England, again, Margaret was very, very loud in her pleas to Elizabeth that Mary should be tried and punished for Darnley's death. Following the last imprisonment for Darnley's marriage without consent, Margaret, the, the, the Lennox estates had been taken from them. She had a house in Hackney, but she was very, very short of money by now. So poor Margaret, she's lost her child, her husband's still in Scotland, and she is sort of stuck in Hackney. And then, curiously, and I can't account for this from anything that I know at the moment, she becomes convinced that Mary was not responsible for Darnley's death. And it's difficult to know why or what information she received that, that made her so certain, because she'd been so certain previously. You know, it's difficult to imagine that she was, you know, lying when she said she was convinced of Mary's innocence. So it's interesting. There's obviously something that she found out that we don't know. So she started corresponding with, with Mary. Um, and she then um, came up with a scheme, because Margaret, bless her, she, she always had a scheme for something or other. She had a scheme for what might happen to her second son, Lord Charles Stuart, who had now been at the, the earldom of Lennox, because actually in, in another blow to poor Margaret, her husband was assassinated in Scotland. But, you know, so ever keen to plan something new, she, she decided that a marriage for Lord Charles might be good. And she request a consent to go north. Now, Elizabeth said, yeah, okay, you can go, go on a little holiday to the north, but you are not to go anywhere near Chatsworth, where the Queen of Scots is. Do not even think about it. So instead, she planned to meet Best of Hardwick at Rufford Hall. Rufford Abbey? I don't know much about Rufford Abbey, actually. Do you? It was, it was one of Best of Hardwick's holdings, wasn't it? I don't 
know much at all, unfortunately. It's on my list of places to visit. It's English Heritage now, so I'm not sure what you can see there. But I'll let you know when I find out, because it is on my list. Right. So there's um, Margaret, Countess of Lennox, Bess, Countess of Shrewsbury, and the two had been friends for many, many years, and Margaret's son, Lord Charles, and Bess's daughter, Elizabeth Cavendish. And the two young people were about 17, 18. And then suddenly, poor Margaret fell ill. And Bess of Harvard was so busy looking after Margaret that she had no time or attention to see what her daughter was up to. So the next thing we know is that Lord Charles Stuart and Elizabeth Cavendish had to get married. This was the story that the Earl of Shrewsbury was forced to tell the Queen when she, again, went completely ballistic about the whole thing. And you've got to admire Margaret's source. There was no stopping her. Despite having been at the Tower three times already, she let this happen. Shrewsbury did manage to persuade the Queen that there was there was nothing in it, and perhaps Elizabeth didn't feel quite so threatened by this marriage. But of course, you know there were penalties to be paid, and you know money to be taken, and the young couple to be separated, and the usual things that happened to, to people who married without Elizabeth's permission. Lord Charles and Elizabeth Cavendish had a little girl, Arbella Stewart. And when Lord Charles died, because Margaret had the grief of seeing all of her children die before her, the little Arbella went to Margaret's house at Hackney and she spent her first years there. Did you know much about the Hackney house? Uh, no, it's sadly it's not there at all now. I do know a little bit about the church. So the local church, St Augustine's Church, is where I believe Charles was buried. But the church no longer isn't there anymore. And I, I think the plan was that he was buried there. With the, She was hoping that he could end up in Westminster Abbey. But in the meantime, he was buried, buried in St Augustine's. And I don't think he was moved. All that remains now is a tower, Augustine's Tower. But if you're in Hackney, instead of going from the tube station, a lot of people could visit Sutton Place, Sir Rafe Sadler's house, which you can still see in Hackney. You sort of walk through the park and you actually pass St Augustine's Tower to do that. So that's the closest I've got to Margaret, sadly, in Hackney. I have to say there is an absolutely outstanding patisserie just near it. <laughs> the best pan of chocolate this side of Paris. So if you're in, in Hackney, go, go to the patisserie there. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, all, all these trips, they do require very, very frequent refueling, don't they, Deb? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a good way to remember them too. Yeah. <laughs> So there's Margaret. She's getting up in years and she's lost all her children. She's got her little granddaughter, but life is not quite as good as it might have been. But she's still still cheerful, still happy. Still, she has a nice house in Hackney and she entertains the court. She entertained the Earl of Leicester to dinner. She and Dudley seem to have been on very good terms. And then the next day, or within a few days, she fell ill. And there were the usual rumours that Dudley had poisoned her, but I think we can probably let him off on that one. And she died. She hoped that Elizabeth would still, would, you know, look after Arbella and try to get her Lennox lands for her. And she left some interesting things in her will. She left a picture of Henry VIII to, I think she left it to Dudley, actually. If you, I've got a copy of her will here. It's, it's quite fascinating. So she bequeathed her soul to God, of course. Yeah, she, she'd already organised to be buried in Westminster Abbey, which was obviously a statement of her belief in her royal lineage because she wanted to be buried in, you know, in the Henry VII Chapel. 
She remembered her, her grandson, the King of Scots, who got her new black velvet bed. Now, we all think, you know, it's like when Shakespeare left his second best bed to his wife, but they were always, you know, valuable things, beds. I love this. She left her sheep to Thomas Fowler, who was one of her stewards. They were probably the most valuable things she owned at that time. And great ladies of the 16th century were quite a lot more hands-on about land management than their Victorian successors. So she left him something like 800 sheep. And interestingly, her collection of clocks, watches and dials... And I think Margaret, she was a collector, you know, she did sort of cigarette cards and top trumps probably in the 20th century, but she collected clocks, watches, dials, relics, all sorts of things. She liked stuff. It looks like she collected men as well. <laughs> <laughs> and she left to her granddaughter Arbella her jewels. And they became a whole other story about the Lady Ar- Arbella's jewels. Now, we don't know, but possibly included amongst them was the Darnley jewel or the Lennox jewel. I don't know if any of you have seen pictures of the Lennox jewel. There's an article about it on our Tudor Times website written by Alison Weir. And its provenance is, is not certain, but either Margaret or her husband commissioned it. And it's full of symbolism about the Lennox family, about James VI, about their royal blood and so forth. So it's a, it's a fascinating piece of jewellery, which I think is at Holyrood House. Yes. It doesn't look like Arbella ever got the jewels, but we don't really know. But of course, Margaret's real legacy was her royal blood. And His Majesty King Charles III is a direct descendant of the Lady Margaret Douglas, not a descendant of Elizabeth, but Margaret, who in some ways can be said to have won out in the end. And she did end up at Westminster Abbey, didn't she? So she did get into Elizabeth, gave permission for her to be buried there and paid for the funeral. And so she is in the Henry VII Chapel at Westminster Abbey. And when her grandson, James VI, became James I of England, he put quite an impressive monument for her there. So there she is. And as you say, I mean, her legacy, it's, it's come all the way down to Charles III today. Very remarkable. All her plotting and scheming paid off in the end, didn't it? Yeah. And I think a fascinating figure. I think she's one of the ones that I always think when you look at what she's done, you get the sense that she must have been quite charismatic. She must have been, you know, when you sort of see the things that she did and the way she operated. And I think a point that Melita always makes, which is really interesting, is that she had friends sort of across the political spectrum too, didn't she? Or she was on good terms with, even if they weren't friends. So there was obviously something about her her character that people really responded to. That's so true. And especially in the Tudor era, to be in the tower that many times and to keep your head, that alone is something to say about her. So you're right, she had to be extremely charismatic. And if you would, could you send me the link to the article about the Darnley Jewel? And I'll put that in the show notes so the listeners can link to it. The article is excellent. I've read it before. I was just going to say, we've got a whole in-depth feature on Margaret Douglas on the site, which includes, you know, the Devonshire manuscript that Melita was talking about. So why don't we give you that link as well? And then you've got everything that listeners can find there. 
Perfect, because that's great educational information and relates to not only Tudor and Stuart history, but today's history as well because of the lineage and Charles III being tied in. So I think that's wonderful information to have. Well, I appreciate you being here as my guests so much, Deborah and Melita. And of course, you always have a standing invitation to return at any time. It's just delightful to have you on here. Well, thank you. We've got a couple more characters that we'd love to talk about because it's just endlessly fascinating. And the more you discover, the more in-depth you go and you find out the the layers of interest and the layers of political and religious and sort of scheming, the more interesting it becomes. So That is so true. And new information is coming out, it seems like all the time, about the Tudor era. And that in itself is exciting. I would like for you to tell listeners where they can find you on social media and how to find Tudor Times and Tudor Places, please. So Tudor Times can be found at tudortimes.co.uk. We have a Tudor Times Facebook page. We have a Twitter account, which is The Tudor Times. And we have an Instagram account, which is also the Tudor Times. That covers it, doesn't it, I think? Yes. But there you'll find everything, Every well, not everything, because we're still working on it, but an awful lot about the Tudors and the Stuarts. Yeah, and then Tudor Places as well. So the website is tudorplaces.com, which is where you can sign up to the magazine in particular, and you can also sign up to the newsletter and find out a little bit about events that are on, including lectures and things around Tudor Places. And we're on social media on Tudor Places on Facebook and Tudor underscore Places on Instagram and Tudor Places on Twitter. And what I've said is I really appreciate the support from All Things Tudor and Deb in particular. And so we've got a discount code for anyone who wants to purchase the magazine. You can get single copies or subscriptions. And the code is ATT10. And you can use that at tutorplaces.com. So code ATT10. Thank you. And I'll put that in the show notes too, if it's okay with you. Oh, thanks, Deb. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks to our listeners for making the magic happen. I appreciate the emails you're sending, the messages, the support is incredible. And today I want to thank Kimmy W for being such a great member of All Things Tutor and leaving the reviews. And again, thanks for making the magic happen. Have a good day and we'll catch y'all later. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tutor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. Mm-hmm.